Hi, I'm Carmen LaBurge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge. Helping you wake up, remembering this is our Father's world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBurge on Faith Radio. Sixth of October, President Trump has been released from the hospital. He's continuing treatment for COVID-19 at the White House. Several members of the White House uh, staff and the Trump re-election campaign staff have tested positive for the coronavirus, as have several Senate Republicans who are needed for the confirmation vote of Amy Coney Barrett to fill the vacancy on the Supreme Court. There is a lot going on. The election is now 28 days away. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has assured the American people yesterday via Twitter, which just is a curious sentence to speak. Um, But yes, the Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has assured the American people yesterday via Twitter that Senate confirmation hearings will begin on Monday, October the 12th, as scheduled, as planned. He said this, Chairman Graham has all the tools to conduct a hybrid hearing, just like the 150 others the Senate has held this year. So you're going to hear a lot of histrionics this week about, you know, why the Senate cannot proceed with a confirmation hearing because there are senators who uh, are are isolated and of necessity because of COVID diagnoses. And as the majority leader is pointing out, the Senate has been conducting its business in a hybrid way uh, for months now. So this is no different. The Supreme Court opened yesterday, uh, opened the term yesterday. Technically, they opened with a case about judging. But the big news from the day uh, was actually concerned with ongoing challenges to religious liberty presented by what I will describe as the sexual revolutionaries in our culture who want to press their agenda forward um, all ways and in all ways. So this came with a denial by the Supreme Court of an appeal of Kim Davis. You will remember her as a Um, as a clerk from a court in Kentucky who refused to sign marriage licenses for same-sex couples following the Supreme Court's 2015 decision in what is known as the Obergefell case. So Kim Davis cited her sincerely held religious beliefs in denying um, to sign the marriage licenses, and the Supreme Court denied to hear an appeal yesterday. That prompted a statement by Justice Clarence Thomas, which was also supported by Justice Samuel Alito. Uh, the, uh, the statement says, in part, by choosing to privilege a novel constitutional right over the religious liberty interests explicitly protected in the First Amendment, and by doing so undemocratically, the court has created a problem that only it can fix. And so that is uh, understood as of today to be Justice Thomas's set up for a revisit of the Obergefell decision, which uh, you will recall made same-sex marriage legal in all 50 states. There are now <clears throat> there are now a half a million uh, households in America where there are people of the same sex who understand themselves to be married, and so this is um, this is. This is going to be a challenging conversation going forward. Also yesterday at a town hall event, 
um, sponsored by NBC, Joe Biden committed to make Roe v. Wade, quote, the law of the land, which, of course, it already is. But uh, interesting that he would um, choose at this point to further alienate uh, pro-life voters, um, you know, again, 28 days until the election. All right. Waiting in the wings right now, Mark Caleb Smith from Cedarville University. He and I are going to talk about some of these political headlines of the day, as well as ooh, what's going on down ballot. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Joining me now, Dr. Mark Caleb Smith from Cedarville University. Good morning, sir. Good morning, Carmen. How are you doing? Oh, I I am well. I am well. Uh, I am not among the 10% of the world global population that's been diagnosed with the coronavirus, but I also recognize that a much larger percentage of the global population will get it before we arrive at herd immunity. So there you go. That's my that's my COVID <laughs> sense of things today. That's that's pandemic cheer speaking. I really appreciate I that. Yeah. Um, okay. The president has been released from the hospital. Questions now center um, around all kinds of things. How effectively can he do both his job as president and campaign in the final weeks of the election and fight the coronavirus uh, in his own body? Biden now leads decisively in national polls. I hate polls, but I have to uh, have to acknowledge that. Uh, concerns are now being raised about uh, the GOP's ability to hold the Senate. So, you know, where do you want to go today? <laughs> Uh, you know, just think back nine months ago how outlandish everything you just said would have sounded to us. It really is remarkable, isn't it? Um, it is. It is absolutely. Well, if if nine months ago um, you had said that um, the president, the sitting president of the United States is going to contract a uh, a virus that has produced a global pandemic that has crippled the world right. economy, um, right. I would have said, wow, really? We ought to um, we, we ought to. Hmm. I don't know. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't know. It's impossible to know in some ways, right, what's going to happen politically, because this isn't the kind of thing that we see. And so whenever we talk about uh, the complications or implications of something, we always like to fall back on history and say, well, this is what happened in a similar situation. Well, that's done, right? There's really no right. reason. You don't have one to point to. No, there's nothing here. And so we don't really know exactly how this is going to work. I mean, when President Trump got diagnosed, you could kind of see it going one of two directions. Uh, people getting sympathetic for him, and he gets a little bit of a bump in the polls, and maybe he comes out of it a little bit more sober and says, you know, I've learned my lesson. Let's take this thing seriously. Uh, or the other approach was that it really defeats Trump uh, because it's a symbol of his uh, difficulty even fighting the virus himself, uh, as well as fighting it as our commander in chief. And, you know, right now it feels like it's going more that second direction. Uh, the president's really trying to milk it for. Uh, PR purposes with sort of the videos and things that are being put together. Uh, but, and I don't really know much about the virus. I'm not a scientist in that sense of the words, but uh, he's really seems to be taking a great risk here, to say the least, to come out of the hospital that quickly, uh, to say that he's going back to work, to show up without a mask at different points. It's, uh, it's remarkable. I'll just say that it's remarkable. Right now, well, I think it, it's it wouldn't it, it wouldn't be legal for most of us. <clears throat> it would not be legal for most of us to um, to actually do what the president is doing in most of the places where we live, because well, you can't you can't go back to work. You can't put other people at risk in that way. 
Um, and no. unless you can do your job in 100 percent isolation from other people, which clearly he cannot do. I mean, he's relying on other people to to do his job. Um, we we would not be allowed to return to work in this way. So he is unique. We just sort of recognize that there is a there is a a uniqueness to the role and responsibility that he has as the president of the United States. But he needs to also be, you know, sort of a, a good role model. And um, and that's part of the challenge here, I think. Well, and also care for the people around him, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you have Secret Service agents, you have people who who give the president food, you have all kinds of people who work around the president because they have to. Um, and are they being protected in this process? Because and my understanding is right now he's probably still contagious and he's oh, still yeah. shedding virus. For 10, so for 10 days, apparently, yeah, according to, right. yeah. Mm-hmm, yeah mm-hmm. And so I, those people have to be taken into account. And uh, you know, you just worry that you're going to see a cascading number of positives. We've already seen a lot out of the White House, uh, but you worry that we're going to see even more. And, you know, okay, let's so I wanna... to worry that all, none of those are serious. Right. And I actually want to talk about that cascading uh, number of positives. Uh, Greg Laurie, who people here featured uh, here during the program every single day in his uh, Knowing God uh, piece, uh, Greg Laurie was actually at events in D.C. Uh, a week ago and events with the president, and he has now uh, shared that he has the coronavirus. Um, but several Senate Republicans, I'm actually, this is the conversation related to whether or not, you know, the the Senate is actually going to get the president's Supreme Court nominee through a confirmation process if they can't be present to vote. Like, that's, that's a serious issue. We now have a number of uh, Senate Republicans who have tested positive for the virus, and therefore they cannot be on the Hill. Um, I want to talk with you a little bit about down ballot races and yeah. um, uh, and what's going on in terms of maybe current strategies regarding down ballot candidates and down ballot issues. But you and I have to take a super brief break. So I am talking with Dr. Mark Caleb Smith from Cedarville University. And after the break, we're going to pick up a conversation about down ballot races across the country. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Continuing my conversation with Dr. Mark Caleb Smith from Cedarville University. All right, Mark, take it away. Down ballot conversations. Well, you know, the interesting thing about down ballot elections typically is that you can see some 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 distance between the president and those state level races. Right. I mean, we tend to think of these uh, even Senate campaigns and, of course, House campaigns as somewhat local affairs. Uh, there are always issues that are different in a state than there are at the national level. And you just, you know, you often even see states that elect senators from different parties, for example, like we have here in Ohio. They're just things that are a little bit odd sometimes down ballot. But it seems like that more and more we're seeing these elections come closer and closer uh, to what we see at the national level. And it's harder for senators to distinguish themselves from national politics. Um, And so right now, the Republicans are really having a hard time figuring out how to handle all of this Donald Trump news. Um, how do you deal with that as a candidate? Do you start to distance yourself from the president somehow? Is that even credible? You know, some of these senators have really spent the last four years tying themselves to Donald Trump in almost every way possible. Uh, but if his poll numbers dip, are they going to try to distance themselves? And if they will, is it effective? Other senators like Susan Collins in Maine has done a reasonable job of putting distance between herself and Donald Trump over the years, uh, but it doesn't seem to be helping her all that much. You know, in polling, She's behind. And so right now, the Republicans are really in danger, I think, of losing their majority in the Senate. And uh, if that happens, then I think you're going to see significant reform take place in our country through the Democrats, because 
a unified democratic government is going to do a lot of things. Right. And and right now, I mean, we have Republican uh, senators at serious uh, risk of being unseated in at yep. least uh, Arizona, uh, Maine. Help me out here. Uh, no, North Carolina, mm-hmm. Georgia, Iowa, Colorado, uh, Montana, South Carolina. You know, again, yeah. think of it's a, not a short a list. Quick. No, it is not a short list. There are plenty of seats for the Democrats to pick up. Potentially, they need four. Uh, there are plenty of them for them to pick up right there. And if Republicans are worried about South Carolina, then yeah. they're they're looking at maybe a landslide. That's the kind of marker that we would say is a, probably a pretty good indication they're going to really struggle in November. Okay, so um, taking all of that into account, um, being being sober about uh, about the possibilities that Joe Biden may well, uh, in fact, win um, a sufficient number of states. Uh, to, you know, have an electoral victory. So anticipating victory, the Biden transition team is actually already building out. So talk with us about what transition planners do and how they're building out a government during the age of COVID-19, like, you know, a government via Zoom. The transitions are really complicated. You know, you're talking about filling around 4,000 political appointees in the executive branch. Uh, that takes a whole pile of resumes. It takes a ton of networking that happens. Um, and, and it's complicated, even in the best of times. Uh, it's, there's a whole team of people who will work on this. They'll do nothing else over the next several months uh, besides plan for a potential transition. With uh, COVID-19, all that gets a lot harder, I think. Uh, you, you have a harder time meeting with people. You have a harder time having secure meetings. You know, Think of some of these positions in very sensitive places. You'd want to give them classified briefings and some sort of sense of of what they think about very specific issues. Uh, That's maybe impossible to do via Zoom. Um, And you wonder whether it's going to bog down the transition process. Now, if Biden wins, in some ways, I think this is minimized because Biden is as Democratic as Democrat gets. Uh, you got to think the people around Biden have thousands and thousands of potential applicants to fill these posts. Um, because he, again, he has long connections in the party. There'd be plenty of people I think who would want to work for him. Contrast that to President Trump four years ago, who was really in some ways running against the establishment. Uh, he had a much harder time, I think, filling those 4,000 positions. And some of those positions were just never filled. They still have never been filled uh, in the Trump administration. So, yeah, I think a hurdle, certainly for Senator Biden, but I'm not sure uh, a hurdle that he can't overcome. Yeah, apparently um, his transition planners are uh, are fast at work, and um, you know, in every new poll that comes in, um, you know, just certainly strengthens their uh, recruiting ability. I suppose is one way to think about it. Uh, one way to think about it. Um, all right, uh, Mark, what else do we want to talk about um, today? Because there are so many things um, we could talk about. You want to weigh in at all on what happened yesterday in the opening uh, opening day of the Supreme Court? Yeah, I, I, I'm glad you gave me the opportunity to do that. I mean, that's a it's a fairly unusual event, you know, for the justices to hand out an opinion on what's a denial of certiorari. You know, they were a case was coming up before the court with Kim Davis, uh, you know, the Kentucky clerk who famously refused to hand out uh, licenses. Uh, the court declined to hear the case, and generally that's the end of it. Uh, but as you said, Justice Thomas issued an opinion in that, and it was a stinging opinion. Uh, he didn't. He dis. He didn't disagree with the court's decision, but he took that as an opportunity to come out and dis and show his disagreement with Obergefell 
And I think that it is an important moment. Uh, he's laying down a marker. And if the court continues to tilt toward his direction, which if they put uh, Amy Coney Barrett on there, then I think that it will, then maybe there would be enough uh, justices at that point who'd want to revisit Obergefell. But you know, I'm not convinced there are five. There may be four at that point. I'm not sure there are five who'd be willing to overturn it. You know, that's a recent precedent. Um, and it's hard to see the court really stepping into that cultural minefield again so quickly. Uh, but it's a historic moment. And it shows the conflict between religious liberty and the Obergefell case, which isn't going to go away. So even though they may not overturn Obergefell in the near future, they are going to have to resolve some of those religious conflicts. Well, and I think that's what, you know, Justice Clarence Thomas and then, you know, co-signed or supported by Justice Samuel Alito. I think that's what they're trying to point out. I think they're basically yeah. saying, look, the, the court created this yep. uh, this problem between you know, people in, in this country who have sincerely held religious beliefs and therefore were having, you know, a conversation about their religious liberty versus uh, people with an asserted right, which really the court created um, a right of same-sex people to marry one another um, through the decision in the Obergefell case in 2015. I mean, they did create a right, and um, which is not included in the Constitution. And so I do think it's a it's an important conversation for not only the court to be having, it's an important conversation for us to understand that the court is having uh, because it does highlight the difference in the way justices on what we will now describe as the right and the left approach the Constitution, whether or not it is um, a living document that uh, in which through which they can see things that were not there originally or if it is a document that uh, is grounded in words that mean something and that those words still have to have the meaning that they had when they were written. Is that a fair way of juxtaposing the two positions that may be a liberal and a conservative, since now those words have been completely redefined in the way we use them, um, uh, the way we are categorizing justices on the Supreme Court today? No, that's a, that's a good summary. I think that I think that's exactly right. And I think it really points to why these confirmation battles are so contentious, because the progressives, the left, uh, they've really built an entire ideology around these um, created rights. And so when you think of abortion, also, I would argue, a created right, not in the Constitution. When you think of same-sex marriage, a created right, not in the Constitution. For them, the Supreme Court's the best game in town. If they lose the court, then really their ideology starts to starts to flounder. Um, and that's why they're so desperate to keep those seats. And that's why I think they would consider packing the court. So, yeah, I, I think this is, isn't going to go away anytime soon. And it could be the defining uh, the defining political issue of the next several years. So this packing the court issue, I heard this um, uh, amplified again yesterday on another uh, radio program Um I mean, I, I hear them now talking about it as if that's a foregone conclusion. Um, if if there's an opportunity for Democrats to take, uh, you know, all three branches of government, which sort of returns us to the initial conversation. If Biden wins the White House and Democrats flip four seats in the Senate, we are headed toward uh, the Supreme Court being expanded in a, in a way that I think ultimately makes it functionally meaningless. I think you're probably right, but it will depend on how, what margin of, uh, of majority they have in the Senate. So if it's a one or two seat margin, that's going to put a lot of pressure on people like Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema, 
who've been fairly moderate on a lot of issues, would they be willing to go down that road to get rid of the filibuster, to, to, to pack the court? Uh, I, I'm just not sure. And so we'll see if the Democrats can hold that together. If they get a four or five seat majority, then I think for sure all that's going to happen. Yeah. Wow. All right. Well, I'd say bright and cheery um, summary of things today. I know. But here's here's the reality. And I've made this observation already once this week and it's only Tuesday, but I'll go ahead and make it again. I'm going to probably have to make it every day for a long time. Um, Christians have, do, can and will continue to live as Christians under every form uh, of government, uh, including this one regardless of who is in the White House. So, Mark Caleb Smith, thank you as always for joining us. Uh, We appreciate your input. Thank you, Carmen. Take care. Have a great day. We'll be right back. All right. Having heard Pastor Greg Laurie there in the Knowing God segment, we do want to lift him up in prayer today. He has tested positive for the coronavirus. uh, And so um, he shared that yesterday Uh, and on his social media. So just want to lift that up before you as a prayer concern. It is Taste and See Tuesday. And have I got a treat for you. Annie Boyd and Denise Herrick from the Gingham Apron are here. For those of you who live in Iowa, you may be familiar with the Gingham Apron. Well, now everybody is going to get uh, familiar with this Iowa family. And they're really wonderfully celebrate, celebrate, celebratory, celebrative. I don't know. Make Cele- celebratory. Yeah, she had it right. Celebratory ways of gathering together as a family. They're sharing it all in a book called The Gathering Table. It's just, it's beautiful. It's delightful. Um, and it's a whole lot of fun. So Taste and See Tuesday brings you The Gathering Table up next. Where do you go to relax? Who calms you down? When you're wound up tight, if I asked those questions of your team, would they give your name as an answer? Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. When a teen struggles, they rarely seek out mom or dad's help. Many times they have good reasons not to. When they get home, they face a barrage of critical words and angry responses, or they feel more shame than hope. When your teen walks out the door each morning, is he more worn out? or more refreshed. You have the ability to be the calming agent in your teen's life. It doesn't mean you approve of all their behavior. It just means you're more ready to embrace them than you are to embarrass them. Look for ways to be a stabilizing force in your teen's life. Looking to make positive changes in your family? Check out the helpful resources from Mark Gregston online at parentingtodaysteens.org. Joining me now, Annie Boyd and Denise Herrick. They are two of five women from one Midwest farm family. You can find them at theginghamapron.com. They're here to share their book with us, The Gathering Table, and also their um, their approach to faith and values and family and hospitality and getting together. So, uh, Annie and Denise, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be on your show. Yeah, it's fun to have you both. Um, Let's do this. Um, Annie, why don't you introduce yourself, and then Denise will ask you to do the same. Uh, Introduce yourselves, how you're related to each other, and then um, who are the other three? So there you go. I'll pass the baton. 
Hi, Carmen. This is Annie. And Hi, Annie. I am Denise's daughter. And um, we also wrote this book with my sister, Jenny, and my sisters-in-law, Shelby and Molly. Thank you, Annie, for introducing yourself. Denise, you introduce yourself and tell us how this all came together. Okay. Um, hi. Uh, pleasure hi. to be on your show. And uh, I am uh, the mom, the patriarch, I guess, in, in, this, in all of this. And, uh, yeah, we live on a farm in southwest Iowa. And um, uh, we just decided one day that we wanted to write a cookbook and was having a conversation with Annie and uh, said, well, and she said, yeah, I think we should. And I said, well, let's uh, ask the other girls. And, and everyone said, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's what we did. We just started on this project and had no idea what what we were uh, getting ourselves into. And um, so we wanted to publish we didn't want to self-publish. We wanted to get our book published, and because of that, we um, really learned how uh, all of this goes down, and it, it, it is a process. It takes a while if you've never published a book before, and so we um, went through a lot of hoops to get where we are to, to be holding a book in our hand, and we're so thankful and so excited about it. Well, it's so fun. And, you know, recipe books or recipe files. I have recipe cards from my grandma Robina in her own handwriting. Um, And so part of this is the is the process of gathering those things together. But it's not just a cookbook. I mean, it's a it's a how to cook up a good family cookbook um, would be one way of saying this. There's a lot of faith woven in here. There's a lot of stories. Um, Talk with us about what we find uh, in the gathering table, um, because there's there's a lot more here than just family recipes. Right. Well, I'll, I'll pull out a couple of two. There are several components. Um, when when that first conversation came up, I was saying to Annie, and what about Grandma Betty's potato salad? And what about Grandma Maxine's ginger cookies? And and you're right. Um, the traditions. Uh, are rich, and uh, we wanted to honor those in those um, older ones in our family uh, with the when we pull out those uh, stained recipe cards, uh, we always think of those people don 't we and so that was that was one part of it. We wanted to um, you know if we were going to write a book, we wanted to make sure that our readers knew that the Lord Jesus Christ is a very, very important part of our lives. And so we wanted our faith uh, to be very transparent uh, throughout the book. Um, Annie, you want to finish some of the components? Sure. We um, decided to start gathering our recipes, but then we took it one step further and said for one year, why don't we gather together once a month and cook through the recipes and enjoy a meal together. And so the book became the story of how our family um, gathered once a month over a year. And so you can kind of see um, what it's like to be a farm family and how we learned 
um, hospitality and to enjoy one another and to celebrate our lives together as we chronicled this journey through the year. So that takes a lot of intentionality. Uh, I am talking with uh, with Annie Boyd and Denise Herrick. Denise is the matriarch of the tribe that brought this together. Um, collectively, they are the Gingham Apron. You can find them at theginghamapron.com. They also have a book, and that's what we're talking about today, and it's called The Gathering Table. Um, uh, Annie, let me let you continue to talk there about the intentionality that's required to actually make family events happen. It's one thing to say, hey, over the next year, we're going to get together once a month. It's another thing to manage all of the schedules and actually make that happen and get everybody together and then, you know, actually follow through. Talk about the role of intentionality in all of this. Okay. Um, a verse that we really focused on was First Peter 4, 9, which says to show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And so um, as you, you just said, it does take a lot of planning and intentionality and um, imagination. And so um, at the beginning of the year, we talked about how each month is different with the different seasons in the Midwest. And so we kind of chose one event for each month of the year that would reflect the weather or the special event that was going on that month. And then um, we all worked together to include different recipes from our families. Um, And then we made sure to include the kids that are in our family. There are 10 grandkids all together. And so it just became a really beautiful project because each month the kids were learning to say, Oh, you know, what's happening this month? And um, where will we be eating together with our family? And we could see the value of the um, practicing of hospitality because it was growing the relationships closer in our family. Yeah. I just love that. The importance of community, the connection across generations, all of that really comes to life. Uh, in the book. The book is The Gathering Table. My conversation partners are Annie Boyd and Denise Herrick. And when we come back, I'm going to um, I'm going to ask Denise to talk a little bit about traditions and how they're constructed and kept. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen and we'll be right back. Oh, I know all I owe. I owe, I owe away. I owe, I owe all I owe and I know why. Continuing my conversation with two of the five women in the Gingham Apron, I really encourage you to check out the website, theginghamapron.com. First of all, you get to see really cute pictures of the five. Um, And yes, if you scroll down the page, you get to see them in their gingham aprons. Um, And so, of course, I recommend that because I'm a visual person. Um, I also, I just love that your byline is taste and see that the Lord is good. Um, That's what we talk about here every Tuesday. We're, We're just... We just delight in people um, making Christ known in the breaking of the bread, and that's what you guys are doing. So The Gathering Table is the book, Growing Strong Relationships Through Food, Faith, and Hospitality. The Gingham Apron uh, are the five women who um, brought it all together, and I have two of them here today, Annie Boyd and Denise Herrick. So, Denise, talk with us about um, maybe the creation and cultivation of traditions, how they're constructed and kept over time across generations? 
That is something that uh, I experienced uh, actually my whole life, but as a little girl, uh, many of us in our, uh, on my mom's side of the family, uh, we went to church together, and uh, I would say once a month we would get together with uh, my mom's folks for a a family gathering um, in their tiny little house, and it didn't matter how tiny it was. There were 13 grandkids, and um, we loved it, and we looked forward to it. And it takes uh, intentionality. It takes work. But because you love your family and you want to serve them uh, and you want to show the importance of um, that connection from generation to generation, um, you just do it. You plan ahead, and you just do it, and and then you see the importance um, of uh, getting together and um, that everyone loved it and that connections get closer and closer and closer. And even today, I am on a text message group with 13 grandkids to this day. And um, and it's because, you know, I look back, it's because my grandparents uh, made that commitment to the family. And so I, I wanted, I see the richness of it I've seen the importance of it, and um, I, I wanted to do the same thing. So um, I'm curious, when you, when you think about all of the family recipes that you guys are basically giving away, right, is there any, is there any sense that, like, oh, this which was, which was kept so closely and guarded, you know, Grandma Betty's key lime pie or the potato salad or the ginger cookies. Like now everybody in the whole world is going to know. Is there is there any sense of that? Because I know people who are who are kind of like that about their, you know, their most treasured family things. But you guys are just giving it all away to all of us, inviting us all in. Well, I think that, you know, food is just the the tool that helps. Hmm gather people together and that um, it helps build the relationships and that's the most important thing. So I guess we didn't really think of it as family secrets to keep, but instead of a gift that we You're not like those another. bushes, beans, see those bushes, beans people, they're keeping it in a vault, right? Yeah. No, that's we're good. not. No, we're not. No. <laughs> okay. Talk with me about, can we have a corn conversation? <laughs> yes. We okay. know it well. <laughs> yeah, because I'm guessing that if we were to look out your window right now, you have either, either already harvested or on the verge of harvesting corn. Am I right? You're right. Uh, a few a few fields have been harvested. They're working on soybeans right now, but um, there's a lot of corn to be harvested real soon. And yes, corn okay, and this is us. and this is um, this is corn that is going to be feed corn for animals. Is that right? Correct. Or do you grow sweet Correct. corn? Okay. So, uh, because I think that's a that's like a thing that people in cities and in other parts of the country, they don't even know that there's like a huge difference. Just because I'm driving through, you know, miles and miles and miles and miles and miles of corn, that's actually not corn that um, is going to end up on the plate in terms of corn. It's going to end up on the plate in terms of beef. Correct. Absolutely. Yeah. That's correct. Yeah. So, uh when we decided to do our sweet corn factory, it's just the sweet corn factory is something we've done for a long, long time, every year, you know. Um, so, uh, yeah, the sweet corn is the, the edible kind, and um, there are uh, many stations involved in putting 
sweet corn into the freezer. Mm-hmm. So um, as the has we have come together over the years, and then our children, um, everybody wanted to stay in the kitchen and help out and, and bag the corn and cut the corn and. One uh, one little trick that we have is to use uh, an angel food cake pan or a bunt pan and put the corn on top of that, and then use an electric knife and zip 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 all the way around the ear, and it goes it goes fast. So of course every every child wants that station because they think it's so fun. But um, yeah, we can we can put up a lot of corn in a few hours when uh, we've got these stations all around our kitchen. And boy, do we we think about it when uh, Thanksgiving and Christmas come because we always pull out our frozen corn for the holidays. And um, so not only do we enjoy uh, that bagged corn for a special event, a holiday, but we also have the memory of what we did just a few months ago with all the kids in the kitchen. So, Annie, I'm curious, when you think back over the course of your life, are um, are there things that you did growing up that now you're doing with the next generation, and you just say to yourself, this kind of defines, this is one of those events, those family gatherings, that really kind of defines who we are as a family. Oh, definitely. And as you've seen in the book, each chapter is kind of a snapshot of the traditions that our family holds. My mom just talked about one, which is a sweet corn factory. We did that every summer growing up and now I'm the mom of five kids and now my kids join into that as well. Um, Another chapter is called the real tailgate party, which we do every fall. We um, take a warm and hearty meal out to the fields and serve the men in our family who are out there harvesting because they're just simply too busy to stop and come in for a good meal. And now my kids and my nieces and nephews tag along and are part of that as well. And so, yeah, it was just a really fun project to be able to capture all these different traditions and practices that I grew up doing and now the next generation is doing with our family. It's, it's a beautiful book. It's really fun. You all invite us in um, not only to your table and to the recipes, but you invite us into your faith, um, the scripture throughout the book, the the stories that you tell. It's really just, it's it's just delightful. It's a great gift book um, for those of you who might be looking for, um, you know, for something mm, to grace your Thanksgiving Day table. Talk with us, um, but we got a couple of minutes left. Either one of you can pick up this. When, um, when a generation begins to move away, how do we continue to include them um, in these really important rhythms that, you know, require face-to-face participation? Well, I think, uh, once again, intentionality uh, is so important um, to get together for those family reunions. And uh, as farming goes, uh, we kind of pay attention to the seasons. We live our lives by the seasons. So we know the busy times. We know the not-so-busy times. And um, and we just have to work around uh, what the farmers are doing. And that's that's how we are, one way we are different from from others. Um, we really do have to do things according to the weather. And so on a rainy day, you know, that's getting together and, and uh, going to town, going shopping, whatever. Um, uh, we do it when when the guys can, can, can come in. So um, 
but back to uh, getting. Do you have any of these? I think maybe. Yeah, I think state. maybe the question is right. Like, are you are you guys at the stage where everybody's still right there, or have you begun uh, to arrive at that at that stage where people have begun to move away? Oh, yes. We want them to move away if that's what the Lord wants them to do. (laughs) Absolutely do. But uh, we also need to plan ahead and say, okay, it it is important. Uh, Our our family's important. Traditions Mm -hmm. are important. So when can we all get together again? And just like the planning of the book, we sit down and decide what we're going to do and when we're going to do it. And, um, and like so many families. And then set it as a priority. We're very purposeful about it. Yeah, I love that. It's intentional. It's purposeful. Um, you make family a priority. The traditions yeah. really matter. The community, the connections, it's across generations. I just love it. It's all just great. Annie and Denise, thank you so much for joining us today on Mornings with Carmen. The book is The Gathering Table. Uh, the website is theginghamapron.com. I know you can follow them on Instagram. All right. Thank you, ladies, so much. Have a great day. Thank you, Carmen. Thank you. you too. God bless Absolutely. you. Absolutely. You too. Happy Taste and See Tuesday. We'll be right back. <laughs> All right. Well, that was fun. All right. Get out there and uh, help somebody taste and see that the Lord is good today. Maybe make Christ known to others in the breaking of the bread. Be sure that you experience that in your own fellowship with the Lord today. Even if you're sitting at a table all by yourself, you're not actually alone. The Lord is present with you. How is it that um, we can have fellowship with the Lord and then extend that fellowship to others? It's a good question for us today. Uh, I think we often find ourselves so engrossed in conversations about things that divide us that we forget to have or we fail to have or we're not intentional about having those conversations about that which binds us together. And so let us be mindful today of the way the Holy Spirit animates our individual lives, but also knits us together as a body of believers in fellowship with one another. You have a family of faith with whom you can gather. Let's be intentional. Even if our families live far, far away, we have a family of faith nearby with whom we can um, begin to build some of these traditions even across generations. So let's uh, let's think about the ways in which we might do that today as we approach the holidays. we got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.